your friend just told you that they have cancer. What do you do? How does it change your relationship? How does it change the way that they exercise? How does it change the way that you and them relate to one another? What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and today I'm joined by Helen Bealey, who is a physiotherapist out of Australia specializing in cancer patients. She today breaks down a lot of the social issues that we deal with as it pertains to helping people who are suffering from cancer and who have recovered from cancer to acclimate to a healthy, active lifestyle. There are a lot of myths out there around the things that cancer patients need to avoid, around the things that cancer survivors need to avoid. There are a lot of charlatans out there selling things that promise to cure cancer that frankly have no opportunity to do so and are doing so irresponsibly. On this podcast, Helen breaks down all of that stuff. The, the, the barrier to entry for conversation is shattered in this podcast and Helen makes it clear and obvious and relatable and easy for you to apply right away. We need to do a better job supporting the people in our society who need the help that the fitness industry today is incapable of. And the way that we do that is by listening to podcasts like this one with experts who are in the market doing the work. Remember, if you found this podcast valuable, useful, leave us that five-star rating, leave us a review, share this with a friend. That is what we need to do to get the podcast to grow so that we can continue to help more people and bring more guests like Helen onto the show. It's your toll. Pay it before you pass. Now, let's get to the show. Helen, welcome to the Active Life Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you. You told me that you thought the best title for this podcast would be Bro Science is Essential for Cancer Patient Care. Absolutely. Tell me Absolutely. why. The, the, well, even before, but the moment you were diagnosed with cancer, your muscle is your new best friend. Um, we have evidence that people with a bigger muscle mass have less toxicity from treatment. They manage to get through their treatment better with less need for you know a dose adjustment. Uh, and then there's evidence that people with a higher muscle mass have a lower rate of recurrence and even um, you know morbidity. That's interesting. So so essentially what you're saying is very much in line with are you familiar with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon? Um, I only heard of her last week when she had my friend, Dr. Um, Joe Zundel. Oh, that's right. Joe was on her show. As, as a guest. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so her, her big principle is that we are not overly fat as a society. We are under muscled and that the measure of skeletal muscle health is, is the most essential measure of health that we have. And I'm, mm. I'm certainly paraphrasing her. So she might say, that's not exactly what I mean, but what I'm, she's, she's got another uh, notch in the belt from what you're describing, it sounds like to me. Yeah, and if we look at some of the awful side effects from cancer itself and from chemotherapy and radiation, uh, you know, you have this um, systematic inflammation which causes the awful fatigue and pain. Um, skeletal muscle mass and, you know, exercise helps reduce that inflammation. So it has a big role in, you know, countering the the side effects of cancer and its treatments. Well, so you're a physio who's working at a 50 and over clinic and with cancer care patients. Yes. Yes. What is their response when you tell them working on their lean muscle mass is one of the most advisable things that they can do post diagnosis? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I'll, it's always better to storytell. <laughs> um, so I had, uh, uh, we call them clients, not patients. Okay. So, um, and they, they come to many exercise classes. We've, we've got two gyms set over a couple of floors. So they'll come to healthy living and all disease-specific ones like diabetes, cardiac rehab, etc. And I had one lady come in and say, oh, look, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. This will be my last day. And I said, why? She's like, well, I've got cancer. You can't exercise with cancer. So then straight away I said, we have guidelines. 
that cancer should be part of cancer care, sorry, that exercise should be a start part of standard cancer care because of all the strong research showing it alleviates the side effects. So reduced fatigue, anxiety, depression, better physical function, improved quality of life. And then I spoke to her about, you know, research in animals that people who exercise during chemotherapy and radiation actually get more of the chemo and radiation into their tumours. And we have emerging evidence that in humans it does further suppress tumour growth. Um, And then I'll just pull out the guidelines. And I think it shouldn't be this way, but we're humans. Um, Most of the people in my clinic know that I'm a cancer survivor because a lot of them saw me at the hospital when I was having my treatment and I came back to work with an inch of hair, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, and I think because I'm a cancer survivor who exercised during treatment and can whip out my phone and show some video footage of me exercising, my credibility goes way up. So, but anyway, with this particular woman, just, just straight away, she was like, okay. Um, she didn't want to come to the gym because at that point we were having our first COVID wave. But I set her up on a home program and we emailed each other every couple of weeks. And, yeah, she did really well through her treatment. So, uh, you know, the the cohort that we have um, usually are on board with the benefits of exercise. So it's not normally difficult um, to convince them. So there is a a myth that goes around that um, you shouldn't exercise because it will spread the cancer. But that's, you know, the very opposite of a reality where, you know, exercise helps stimulate your immune system, which will help suppress tumour growth. So exercise will never be a cure for cancer, but we have good evidence that those engaged in higher levels of um, exercise um, you end up having less rates of getting cancer um, or for, for a cancer survivor, a, a lower rate of recurrence. Is there a level of intensity that it's important to stay within? <clears throat> I ask that because when I think yes. about I, I, when I think about exercising with cancer, the thing that I believe is reasonable to come to somebody's mind is not that the tumor will grow. It's that the fatigue that sets in after a workout is harder to recover from as a result of the cancer and the cancer treatment that you may be going through. So what are the guidelines yeah. around intensity around exercise with and after cancer? Well, let's go with with first. Oh, well, it's it's similar to the general population, but it's it's 150 minutes per week of moderate intense aerobic activity or 75 per minutes per week of vigorous intensity exercise and two to three resistance training sessions per week. And there have been numerous studies um, looking at high-intensity training, you know, hit, hit aerobic training and high-intensity resistance training um, you know, during treatment and it's safe and, you know, trying to be safe and efficacy. Oh, my brain's not working. You're doing <laughs> safe and effective. Yeah. So that high intensity, yeah, the hit aerobic and high intensity resistance training has been shown to be safe um, and effective. So, but, you know, most of the studies have been done in, you know, breast, colorectal and prostate cancer. Are there different yeah. signs that need to be looked for for somebody who's, for example, going through cancer care and working out where, for example, um, somebody who maybe has MS, you know, someone who has MS, you might think if you're untrained that that's a person who is just overtired that day, but they could be legitimately overheating and having an inflammatory response. Somebody mm-hmm. who's diabetic, if you don't understand how diabetes works, you could not re- you could miss the signs that they are having an insulin spike and find yourself doing damage to that person. Yeah. Are there telltale signs like this for a cancer patient as well, or is that something that is less um, less relevant? Uh, so, um, I guess you know you need to use those principles of autoregulation because people will present differently on different days depending on where they are in their treatment. So, but, you know, if anyone's presenting with, you know, if their pain significantly increases or their fatigue significantly increases during the workout, you know, you can also be monitoring things like, um, you know, heart rate. Mm -hmm. 
as well. Um, and I guess if they started to, I guess with my older adults, if I saw a deterioration in their, their gait pattern or their balance, you'd be like, oh, you're overdoing it. No, we just need to, to pull you right back. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I heard you refer to yourself as a cancer survivor a moment ago. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I really wanted to interview you is I think that your your presence on your social media platform, besides being highly recommended by Dr. Joe Zindel as the person I should be talking to about this, is highly empathetic. You know, it's it's playful, it's educational, it's fun, it's lighthearted, it's it's the opposite of what you would picture on a cancer floor in a hospital, if you will. Um, and to me that that's really interesting because it speaks to the way that I imagine you would have wanted people to have been around you when you were going through your cancer treatments. Is that, Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to really be able to gain uh, a level of empathy from you today that, um, I'm lacking because I just don't have the information. So you called yourself a cancer survivor earlier. Is mm-hmm. that how people who have survived cancer like to be referred? I know you can't speak for it, everybody. Yeah, no, no. It's it's really mixed. So for me, cancer survivor, it's just a medical definition. So mm-hmm. the very second you are diagnosed to the day you die, as a medical concept or a medical term, you are a cancer survivor. So that I understand that as a health professional. But other people really cringe and they just like the term survivor. Some people like thriver. That makes me cringe. Mm-hmm. It's like, why should I be thriving? I've got these long-term side effects that I'll have for the rest of my life. And I, you know, there shouldn't be put pressure on you to thrive. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of mythology around cancer. It's like we've all suddenly discovered the meaning of life and we're waking up each morning, you know, deliriously happy and, you know, living in the moment and, you know, taking everything for granted. It's it's just a horrible disease. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yes, there are, there are some, you know, insights that you might gain about life, but it's a horrible disease and this pressure shouldn't be put on cancer survivors to um, suddenly be, you know, living each moment with great gratitude. Um, So there's not really, you know, everybody is different. So um, also I have a personal hatred of warrior and fighter. I'm a cancer warrior. I'm a cancer fighter. And in the research, most cancer patients don't like that language and the group that most identify with it are breast cancer survivors. But, again, it depends on the person. So I have friends who call themselves um, a cancer warrior, and that's fine. If you want to call yourself that, I will absolutely respect that. Happy to have a conversation with each other saying, yeah, you like it for this reasons, whereas me, it just makes me absolutely cringe. So there really is no terminology that is acceptable among, um, you know, the whole cancer community. And it would just be asking each, you know, individual. Um, But, you know, I am not my medical diagnosis. I'm a human. Mm -hmm. My whole life is not that I had cancer or I have cancer. So it's just, yeah, each individual. Uh, if you have a look at, you know, you were talking about the playfulness um, and, it, you know, you don't want to be serious and all doom and gloom. You know, you need to, um, I guess, uh, look at the, the, the you know, you've got to laugh at it all. And we've got a lot of meme pages that have come up and people, you know, say, you know, memes are my therapy. And one of the biggest uh, meme pages is the cancer patient. And I don't want to reveal their identity, <laughs> but um, this, this person just makes absolute fun of everything uh, and people love it, you know, especially the uh, this person set it up for the AYA community, so that's the adolescent and young adult community. 
But then off the back of that, there are heaps of meme pages. So, you know, cancer ship posts, um, the cancer patient, um, you know, cancer, oh, I'm having a, you know, cancer destruction club. There's all these you know, amazing um, meme pages. And when you show them to someone who's, uh, you know, when I often show, I'll show them to my husband or even my colleagues, uh, I'll just be like, oh, this is hilarious. And they'll be like, <laughs> can't make jokes about that. Like, why not? So one of, you know, one of my favourite, you know, um, you know, for stage four cancer survivors, there are some that will be on treatment for the rest of their life, you know. So the, the meme will be somebody singing, you know, for, for the rest of my life. You know, when somebody asks me how long will be on treat, my treatment, and then there'll be some diva singing, for, you know, forever and ever or, you know, you just, you have to joke about it. So, mm-hmm. and um, also we, we make a lot of fun of cancer muggles, um, have you heard of the concept of a cancer muggle? No, I was going to ask you. It sounds like a Harry Potter <laughs> I think the urban dictionary definition is something like, you know, people who think they know a lot about cancer but they know shit all. Um, but it's basically, I think as a society, people fear cancer. You know, being diagnosed with cancer is somebody's worst fear. So when somebody they know that's seemingly, you know, young and healthy, who exercises and eat rights, when they get cancer, I think it brings fear to people that, oh, my gosh, you know, I could get cancer. Um, and so then they might start, you know, grilling you. Well, why did you get cancer? You know, were you vegan? Did you do yoga? Mm-hmm. Whereas I know plenty of vegan yoga instructors um, who, who got cancer, you know, in their 30s. Um, and then comes all, all the rubbish about, oh, you know, sugar feeds the cancer. Um, so just, like, don't eat sugar. Uh, take these supplements and you don't need cancer. Um, you know, coffee enemas. Um, yeah, all enemas. So many enemas. It's like why, why is putting things up your butt going to cure the cancer? <laughs> but that's, you know, the, the, the rubbish. The classic I was told um, was that uh, lemon juice seems to be a thing. But somebody told me Bill Gates patented, patented lemon peel, therefore it's a cure for cancer. So if you just put lemon peel in the freezer and then I can't, you know, and then, you know, drink it in, in water, you'll cure your cancer. You know, celery juice, you know, um, alkaline diet. Uh, and then the funniest was, you know, alkaline diet plus lemon juice, which doesn't even make sense if you remember your basic well, maybe, well, <laughs> maybe, chemistry. Maybe what, yeah. you're, maybe what you're missing is it's an alkaline diet and lemon juice up the butt. Well, that's the cure. You've missed that's it. That's the cure. So people just come out with this absolute nonsense. And then, um, you know, people can start judging you for what you eat. And I'll give you a classic example. Um, a friend of mine who actually, you know, does eat a plant-based diet, which doesn't mean you're a vegan. She, most of her food, uh, you know, her nutrition comes from plants, and she occasionally eats some meat. Anyway, she had um, finished um, 18 months of chemotherapy and decided to go out to celebrate with her mother. So this friend was, you know, in her early 30s at the time. So she's out, you know, bald head, obviously, a cancer patient having bacon and eggs and pancakes. And this man just comes up to her. Oh, no wonder you've got cancer. Look at what you're eating. Bacon is full of carcinogens. Yeah. So it's just this, this judgment that you can get um, from people. It's, it, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think it's probably worse in younger people. So that, that AYA cancer population, I don't know that, you know, 60 and 70-year-olds um, get this judgment, but that's that's really common. Um, we have lots of charlatans. Like people will make money off anything. Mm-hmm. So we've got charlatans telling people, oh, I beat cancer with my special diet and my exercise and my supplement. What they don't tell you is, oh, I had a highly treatable cancer, a surgeon cut it out with clear margins and zero lymph node involvement. So I didn't need chemo and radiation anyway 
But now I'm, I've got my multi-million dollar business where I am basically telling people to skip chemo and radiation um, for, you know, link in bio for my book and my supplements and all my other, um, you know, bullshit. And I worked in palliative care for a few years and I saw the consequences of that. That's a so, scary thought. It is so scary. And there, there, there does not appear to be any legal ramifications. We have cancer survivors, you know, um, who are, well, this, who are health professionals who are now saying, you know, selling their, their rubbish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's truly frightening. And there's a statistic, uh, American, it's around about a third of Americans believe you can cure cancer with supplements and lifestyle. So, yeah. Where, where is your head at on the, um, how do I describe it? On the role that mindset plays. So, so I'll, okay. I'll go ahead. You look, it sounds like you're ready. No, to no, I, no, no, I hear what you're saying. So, um, positive thinking, mm-hmm. being told to think positive, uh, makes you want you is very annoying. Mm-hmm. So when I was told to stay positive, I was mentally punching that person in the face. <laughs> and I think most cancer survivors will tell you that. However, um, there is a mindset um, around exercise that I'll talk about in a moment, but I just want to acknowledge that distress is perfectly normal in cancer. Did you say distress? Distress, Mm -hmm. yeah. There's there's a guideline from um, ASCO, so the American Society of Clinical Oncology, around um, distress, and they call it that deliberately because you can be distressed but you're not depressed or anxious so distress is really, really normal at, and it heightens at certain phases in the journey. So getting the diagnosis, starting a new treatment, but then, you know, waiting for tests, scanxiety is, is a term. There's, there is not, there is, I would argue there is no anxiety like scanxiety. I can imagine. Um, and then all, yeah, and then another one is the end of treatment. So it's really normal that people have finished and it might have been, um, you know, years of treatment and they finished treatment and everybody's like, yeah, you finished treatment and, you know, rung the bell and everyone thinks that you're just suddenly going to be happy. But you're left with, um, you, you know, you're, you're, yes, you're, you don't have that reassurance that you're in treatment having the, mm-hmm. that medicine that's killing the cancer. Um, you've been in a routine of going to the hospital maybe a few times a week you know, you're left without a routine, you now have fear of recurrence and you're left with all these long-term side effects. So the majority of cancer survivors will experience long-term side effects with fatigue um, being the main one. So, and cancer, hey, you know, when cancer patients have to tolerate incredibly high levels of anxiety. So, um, there's an Australian physiotherapist who's also a psychologist. Um, I, I, I saw him give a talk and he was saying, you know, normally when your anxiety levels get to a certain amount, you then avoid the situation. But with cancer, you can't. So you know, going to chemotherapy, like there is nothing more anxiety-inducing than going to chemo. But it's also anxiety-inducing not going to chemo. You, you can't skip it because you want to stay alive. So it's people do tolerate incredibly high levels of um, anxiety. Yeah. Well, I can I can imagine the anxiety of the skin because I can imagine if I would I would challenge every healthy person, and when I say healthy, I mean cancer-free person right now listening to this to imagine. Hey, you're going to come in for a scan this week. We're just going to check in and see if there's any cancer in your body. You never, you weren't thinking about cancer being in your body, but then you went and got the. Now you're like, I'm going to find out for a hundred percent certain. And when you get the envelope, let's just pretend it was an envelope or an email that says your results are inside. Even though there's like I don't know a 99.9 percent chance that you're cancer free because you don't have any of the symptoms prior to going and getting the scan done. There's a level of anxiety around opening that that piece of mail to find out mm. the certainty. Yeah. I'm less clear on why going to get chemo 
is a high anxiety moment. Can you unpack that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good getting laughed at. I'm good. Is, is it because of how uncomfortable it makes you? <laughs> Sorry, that's this is a funny question. Okay, so, um, well, the first one, it's the unknown. Mm-hmm. You're about to have, you know, poison pumped through your body. Um, the the disclaimers. Let me tell you before you even start. You've got the disclaimer. So for my type of cancer. Um, the first chemotherapy I did uh, is nicknamed the Red Devil. And the disclaimer says there's, I can't remember, there's, I think it's like there's a 1% chance you'll end up with permanent heart failure. And there's, I can't remember the percentage that you'll end up with leukemia. So it's like, hmm, I've got a choice. I can die now of the cancer I have, or I can die later of a different cancer or heart failure. And then, so it's like, you know, there are some, you know, side effects of these therapies. Uh, And then you go through this really, 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 really long list of um, potential side effects. So then, you know, so you have the first one and then you experience the side effects. And for me, I had mine every two weeks. So you just feel like really awful the first few days and then you gradually start to feel less awful and then you wake up on the morning of dose two going, here we go again. Mm-hmm. Like, the, I'm not, you know, this is going to make me feel really, really lousy. Um, I had 16 rounds of chemo and then after a few, you kind of, you know, for me it was like which side effect will I get this time? Because it was different every time, you know, which one I would uh, get. And uh, I think people are familiar with, you know, vomiting. So the classic, you know, in the movie everybody's, you know, got the bucket and they're vomiting in the corner. But actually we've got really good drugs now for nausea. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, but um, there's a game-changing drug called Ondansetron. Um, But there's a whole bunch of other side effects that people don't know about it. So you think of any rapidly dividing cell. So basically your whole, you know, well, everyone knows hair, um, but, you know, your whole digestive system. So it's you can get constipation and diarrhoea. Oh, <laughs> and you get you can get both constipation one day, diarrhea the next, reflux, awful reflux, nails. So I had um, re- incredibly you know painful fingernails. I couldn't open packages. My kids got used to me. If there was something, I'd just hand it to them. It was like a role reversal. I became the the child saying, "Please open this. You know, mm-hmm. open the packet of wraps for me because it's it's just too painful." Um, you know, I lost some toenails, um, you know, and pain and fatigue. The fatigue is, you know, overwhelming. So so this is why you signed up for this for, you know, depending on what regime of chemo or your treatment is, you have all these um, side effects. And I think people don't realise how long treatments can take. So, you know, me personally, I was on treatment for 16 months. I've had... I've had, and that was short compared to friends who had years, multiple surgeries, and then you have people who are on chemo for the rest of their life. For the rest of their the life. The stage four. Rest of their life. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah. So. How did the social. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, but if, if we want to talk about mindset, I don't know if you want to talk about mindset and exercise now. We'll get to that later. What I, what I would like um, to go to now, if it's okay, is I'm curious how yeah. the social dynamic with family and friends changes, right? Because, because one of the things that I've always um, struggled with in, in any kind of a, a situation of struggle for them that I've come, I, I've developed strategies over time because I want to be a good friend to people is how do you behave around mm. the person who's going through this difficult time? And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a friend once who had torn an ACL, right? So yeah. not cancer. He was certainly going to survive. And I overwhelmed him with how can I help? Right. And like, yeah. Hey, do you need a ride? Do you need this? Can I take you here? Can I take you there? And finally he was like, Hey man, I appreciate you making all the offers. Um, I can do most things. And like, I'll, I'll, I promise I will ask you 
if I need help with it. And I felt bad because I, I could tell that I had overwhelmed him. And this is years ago, but I could tell I had overwhelmed him with like making it seem as if he was incapable of taking care of himself. And the other side of that is I wanted to avoid um, making it seem as though I was not there for him. Mm. Right. And I, I don't, I can't think of a friend of mine who has experienced a cancer bout while I was friends with them. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the right approach would be. Okay. I'll, I'll just say, cause I've done ACL. So the amount of the help you need ACL versus cancer is, you know, well different. So it is overwhelming for somebody just to say, let me know if you need anything because right. you're so tired you feel so sick. You don't know what you need. Um, so it was a good approach that you gave a very specific example. So that that's brilliant. Can I drive you? Mm. So rather than saying, what can I do to help, be very specific. Like, um, because there's nothing worse when people say, it hasn't happened to me, but it's reported that people will say, anything I can do to help, just ask. And then when the person asks, they go, oh, no. So right. it's getting specific, saying, okay, I can cook you a meal on Tuesdays. So, for example, my mother-in-law dropped around a meal once a week on Tuesdays because Tuesday was my chemo day. And the meals were so massive, they fed our family of five for two days. So that was a very specific thing. Um, uh, it might be, you know, if you've got children, uh, would you like me to pick up the kids and take them to soccer practice mm-hmm. on Tuesdays and Thursdays? It might be, I'm, up, I'm at the grocery shop right now. Do you want me to pick you anything up while I'm here? So getting very, very specific with what you can do. Um, I had a neighbour diagnosed and I said to her, I'm not going to cook because I'm a terrible cook, but I'm happy I'm happy to mow the lawn or cut the grass, as you would say. We say mow the lawn here. I'm like, I'll, I'll mow the lawn for you, but I'm, you, believe me, you do not want me cooking for you. So it's, it's just getting very specific. Um, in Australia, we've actually got this app. And someone needs to develop it in another country, but it's brilliant. It's called Gather My Crew. And what it is is all the people who want to help um, sign on to this website or on this app, and then the person who needs the help will write a list, drive mm-hmm. children to soccer practice, help with help kids with homework, um, you know, pick up gross, pick up the milk or whatever. So they, they write a list. And then the people can go in and nominate themselves for exactly what um, they, they are capable of doing. Yeah. So yeah. help the help is great. And the other thing is just checking in because when you're going through chemo, time goes so slowly, especially when you're feeling really sick. And just even just checking in. I'm thinking of you. You don't have to answer if you're feeling unwell just so that people know that you're not forgotten. And I had one day, like I just, before I got onto medication for it, I had such severe reflux. The pain was so bad. I was actually crying crying on and off from the pain all afternoon. And so then, of course, I spiraled into misery. No, everybody's forgotten about me. They're like, nobody cares. You know, I was just feeling really sorry for myself. But then my logical brain took over and went, why don't you go and have a look at your phone and see the last time somebody made contact? So I got out the phone and it had been 20 hours since someone had sent a message saying, just want you to know I love you and, you know, you know, um, call me if you want to have a chat. So then, of course, I, I then started laughing out at myself and snapped myself out of my misery. But that's just, it was the longest 20 hours because I was in so much pain. So, um I think I've got better at supporting people since I've had my experience because, you know, formerly years ago I had a colleague with cancer and I look back and I think, oh, I don't think, I think I thought, oh, I want to respect her privacy. So um, I didn't contact her as much as she could. So then I had a colleague um, have a baby at 26 weeks. So I just made a point every two weeks, hello, I'm thinking of you. Uh, I hope you and baby are doing well. Um, Let me know if you want to chat. And I just, you know, so during my chemo, because I was like, no, no, I want to be a good, um, I've learned from this experience of how to be a better support for somebody. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it might just be you think, look, every, you know, depending on how close you are to the person, every, every whatever, I will send a message or, yeah. Well, I think you give two really good pieces of advice there. The first one being the more specific you can be, it might feel like you're not offering enough. But by eliminating the need for the person who is suffering to have to come up with what it is that they could use your help with. Yeah. It's like if you say, what yeah, do you want? Yeah. You know, hey, what do you want for dinner? I, I don't know. It'd be easier to say, what would you like from the Chinese restaurant? Yeah. Right? So yeah. You're, you're actually doing them the solid by making it specific as, as an offer. Uh, and if yeah. they say no to the first, you're certainly welcome to offer a different thing, I imagine. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is checking in without the expectation of a response yeah. because that it's not for you. It's, Hey, I'm, I just wanted to let you know, you went through my mind today. I'm thinking about yeah. you. I love you. Uh, I'm here. If you need anything, if you need a call, yeah. um, yeah. because one of I the, think, go ahead. Oh, I think the other thing is, um, don't tell them how hard it is on you. Oh, oh no? it's so hard on me. You don't know how hard this is on me. It's like, why would, no, no, no. Why no. would someone say that? That seems like an obvious thing uh, not to say. <laughs> really? They do. Because they're cancer muggles. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, so hey, your, your cancer is so hard for me. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But they do. Hey. They do. So, um, yeah. But, you know, the fact that you offered help is great because there's a lot of ghosting that goes on. It's, it's really, really common. But we've got what's called the shuffling of the decks of relationships that happened to me and everybody I know. It might be someone that you thought was really close to you just disappear, you know. They disappear, don't contact you at all. But then other people that maybe were like a, more of an acquaintance really, really step up. So that happened to me. I had people that were kind of, you know, acquaintances really, really step up you know, and now we're close friends and then people that, you know, close friends that haven't heard from them since my diagnosis back in 2020. So it's quite normal and I think it's just a reflection on human behaviour and I think if you know it's normal, it's easier not to take it personally and it's more about that person's inability to deal with cancer Mm -hmm. and it's not personal on you. So the, the, the hard reality there is that the person, like it it really isn't about you. It's about the person, but you thought that was a person you could count on in times of difficulty when you weren't having times of difficulty. Now here you are, you've invested all of this time and all of this energy into this relationship for a person who, if they were going through something difficult, you would absolutely be there for them. And so it's reasonable. I mean, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had that experience with, uh, with illness, but I've had that experience in business. You know, when things are going well, you have the people who are like, they're right there. And then things yeah. start to show signs of trouble. And they'll, you're like, well, what, what, weren't you right next to me like five minutes ago? And yeah. now you're nowhere to be seen. And it's really, yeah. you know, it's, it's because what I've come to understand is it's because either they can't handle the energy around that kind of a struggle uh, they feel uncomfortable because they don't know what to say, what to do, how to be helpful. They are uh, brought to grips with the reality that their situation could just as easily take the same turn and they've been living in a cloud and they haven't had to think about it. Yeah. And a multitude of other reasons that I can't even try to project. Yeah. But I yeah. imagine in the moment that's hard to to rationalize. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I know the, the cancer patient put it well, like uh, that they have a shit list. <laughs> yeah. Like, I might forgive, but I'll never forget. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, if that does happen and the person approaches you, you know, when your treatment's finished, it's up to you as an individual to decide whether that's a relationship worth rescuing. Yeah. Um, because I'm always, you know, you got to have forgiveness, but it's just like, well, I'll forgive you, but do I want to engage back in a relationship with you or have I decided that, no, um, I have limited energy and no, I'll, I'll forgive you, but you know, that's the end of that. There's another concept called grief tourism. And again, I, it does occur in my older adults, but yeah, in, in a younger crowd, it seems to be more prevalent and it's um, people might not 
contact you during your treatment, but they'll post a photo of you, you know, saying, oh, I'm so proud of my friend. She's been such a brave warrior during her mm-hmm. cancer treatment. So to kind of get, I guess, you know, virtue signaling or, or, or whatever, um, and that can be, I didn't experience that. I'm older. Um, but I think in the, you know, adolescence, you know, 20, 30 year olds, that can be a thing. So, um, it's like you, you're taking some credibility from my pain, but you're not doing anything to help me and you haven't contacted me. So that's, that's really common. And again, putting a label to it, um, helps. So, you know, I work at an over fifties clinic and things like, you know, the ghosting and, grief tourism occur and that they'll be describing it to me and I'll say, oh, that is so common, it has a name. That's called ghosting and it will make them feel better. Right. Not because, because then they go, okay, well, now it's less personal because I realise it's just human, it's part of human nature and it still hurts that my best friend of 40 years didn't contact me during my treatment but I know that it has a name. And then I'll talk about that shuffling of decks. I go, yeah, actually, you're right. So my best friend of 40 years didn't contact me at all. But this person who was, um, you know, we were former colleagues, stepped up to the plate and now we're really, really close friends. So they can, you know, help them them deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my closest friends, um, unfortunately, had had her father passed away unexpectedly. And, you know, it, it became this thing where, like, at the time we were friends. We were not the closest of friends. And my wife and I made it a point that um, every single day for I think it was like two weeks, we were at her house cooking, cleaning, and then yep. you know, checking in every uh, every day thereafter. Um, yeah. And that is the reason I believe that now we, you know, my, my kids call her aunt. You know, it's, yeah. it's I think that's, I think that's why. Yeah. Um, Can I just say that good the, the goodwill can be at the beginning. Like, so, you know, for me, I had, I don't know, 16 months of treatment. So that early phase, that's when everyone's dropping over food. Mm-hmm. But then as the months roll by, that's where it can be that you're starting to actually, you're starting to feel that cumulative fatigue and, you know, you're being ground down by all the treatments and that's when you need the support. So that's where it's good for people just to keep, you know, yeah. Uh, realizing how long treatments take. I have a yeah. friend, I have a friend who unfortunately recently lost her husband and I didn't know what to say. I had no idea, like I had no idea. And he was a friend of yeah. mine. Um, but you know, so when she, I would watch and she, as she would start posting things in her own social media as her outlet. And she would say things like everyone who's sending me stories about your memories of him, like, thank you, especially the funny ones. You know, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh wow, okay. I would have thought doing that would make her feel worse, and so I'm glad that she's now given me the permission. And so all yeah. that to say, I guess um, I'm hopeful that maybe oftentimes people who are going through difficult times will share in some way um, if you're paying attention how you can be helpful to them. Yeah. What about yeah. what about overemphasizing it? I'm thinking about right now someone who, for example. Um, is it, let's pretend you're a member of a group fitness environment. You get diagnosed with cancer. You come into the gym. I imagine the last thing that you want is for the person who greets you to be like, Hey, Helen's here. Everybody give a hand to Helen. She's fighting cancer and she's here doing her best. Right. So where is the balance? Just treat me like the person I was before. Just take care of me as if I was normal. Absolutely. Look, if that happened to me, I would never go back to that gym again. I would be horrified. But at mine, um, so I, I was training at a powerlifting gym and, you know, I'd go in with my bald head and people would just treat me normal. Mm-hmm. Well, how are you? How are you lifting going? Um, they had the personal best board and right. I ended up with two lines, pre-cancer, post-cancer. So they'd just be going and having a look at, oh, how are you going? Oh, look, you've, you've added another whatever weight to your bench press. Well done. But they just treated me like normal. Mm-hmm. And that's, I imagine, what so makes you, you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and there was one personal trainer. So I, I trained between two gyms, and she was really, really irritating. 
to come up and go, oh, my God, you are so inspiring. Oh, my God, you just <laughs> so inspiring. And I'd be, you know, in the course of a workout, I'd be told about 20 times, oh, you're just so inspiring. It's like, oh, shut up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. No way. So I knew what time she worked and I didn't go when she was there. Um, but there's a term for it. It's like inspiration porn. Mm. We are not your inspiration porn. Like, um, yeah. It's it's funny. It's kind of if another cancer survivor says to me, you're so inspiring, I'll go, oh, that's great. I'm really, really glad I'm inspiring you to move. But if a non-cancer person says, oh, you're so inspirational, depending on context, it can be just like. Well, t- talk about that. Well, why, well, it's because why am I inspirational? All I'm doing is trying not to die. Well, I, I, so, I, I, I can, I can answer so, that. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious. Cause I, I am curious where the line is. Um, if yeah, some, it is, it's hard. Yeah. Well, look, if, if you, if you were going through something really difficult and you persevered and came into the gym <laughs> in spite yeah. of it, I know you're not yeah, feeling okay. your best. And the fact that you came in while you're fighting something so difficult and continue to make yeah. this an important part of your life is yeah. inspirational. And so yeah. is it, is it that, it should never be said or is it that it should be said once and then like, we get it. I appreciate that you're yeah. inspiring to you. Yeah. Well, I would probably, yeah, look, and it's probably different for every person. I'm only speaking as an individual, although I do, it's memes to death. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that it's a meme, inspiration porn, I am not your inspiration porn, should tell you something. So it might be, maybe you say it once, but you certainly don't follow someone around the gym telling them how inspirational they are because it's it's really grinding. So for me, it's, you know, a diabetic taking insulin is not inspiring. They're just taking their medicine. So why would it me having chemotherapy be inspiring? It's just I'm taking my medicine, you know, and exercise is medicine. So I'm just taking another medicine. Like it's a difficult medicine to take, but I'm just taking it in my very best efforts to not be dead. So Personally, I will say to other um, people going through their treatment, like they might, they might, um, you know, post a picture of them, you know, after radiation, and um, you can see that they've got some radiation burns, and they're doing their gym workout. And I will say, well done. Um, actually, I'm just trying to think if I do say, I do tell people they're inspirational for their exercise, but I figure it's like I'm allowed. To- I'm allowed to because I've got I've been given the free pass as a cancer survivor. You get the whole so pass. So it's it's probably one of those. There is no right or wrong. It would just be avoid saying it multiple multiple times. And at least when you said, like I liked the way that you said something's inspirational. You said why? You didn't just go, oh, it's quite inspirational. You're saying it's great. You're showing this commitment. Um, to your exercise regime despite the difficulty that you're going through. So that at least you've got a reason of why it's inspirational. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I think I think that's in general. Anytime you give somebody yeah. a – I'll speak for myself. Anytime I give somebody a compliment, anytime I tell somebody that what they did um, influenced me to feel a certain way, I like yeah. to add the context of why because yeah. that person might want to do that more often. And they might not, yeah. but, but at least they have the information that they need to make the decision to take the action that elicited yeah. the response should they want to. Uh, if, if you say you're so inspiring, now it's left to you to figure out what is it about me that's inspiring to you? Is it because you think I should be dead? Is it because <laughs> right, like all of those things can most certainly go through your head? And I think that that's, <clears throat> that's a key component of any effective communication is to be as complete as you mm. can without mm. using paragraphs and paragraphs of words. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I don't, I guess in, in this discussion, I don't want to be putting up barriers that people have been just too scared to say anything and then, then ghost the person. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I don't think that you are. I, th- I think that, um, yeah. I think there's a very clear line there. And there's also a being a human and reading the response in the room, right? If yeah. you tell someone you're so inspiring and they're like, oh, you know, they didn't like that. And you can either apologize and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I, I, that seems like it put you off. And I yeah. meant it in the most, um, 
in the most complimentary way. I hope that that was okay. And then you just never say it again. Or if they say, oh, thanks. Like they don't want to hear it again. It's, you can yeah. use social cues to be a human. <clears throat> um, yeah. And then if you do everything right after having said the wrong thing, because we all say the wrong thing, like we're, yeah. <clears throat> we're going to say the wrong thing to someone who we care about eventually, if we're with them long enough, yeah. as long as the yeah. other 99.999% of the things that you do are in favor, you're fine. <clears throat> so I don't yeah. think you're putting up barriers. Yeah. But I do want to talk about a barrier and that is the rate of time between common sense indicating we should probably do that and science catching up and making it a guideline. There are a lot of people out there who will not do anything until there is a double blind study that somebody who they know was a part of executed by the university that they went to before they're going to take the action indicated by the study. And I'm being mm -hmm. hyperbolic, of course. What do we do about the gap between the time from which we know like exercise for a person with cancer is probably a good idea. Like it's going to boost their immune system. It's going to improve circulation. It's going to do all these things. And then waiting for the research to come out and say, yep, we've studied it now for 15 years. It's, it's a good idea. Cause how many people had to die in those 15 years who maybe didn't, mm -hmm. didn't have to. Okay. We have strong guidelines now. Mm -hmm. We have the guidelines. So ASCO, so the American Society of Clinical Oncology, last year came out and said oncology providers should encourage resistance and aerobic training for uh, during active treatment. We've got uh, international consensus statement that came out in 2019 saying, yeah, cancer, cancer survivors should exercise. Um, Australia was the first country to release an international guideline saying exercise should be embedded as a part of standard cancer care because we have strong research that exercise reduces the side effects um, of treatment. So I think I've already been through this you know, fatigue, anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. improves your quality of life uh, and so on. So we have the very strong research and we have the guidelines, but there's a huge gap in we have a, a lack of uh, health professionals and fitness professionals to provide the services. So that's where we're at at this point in time. We have this, this massive gap in what the research and the guidelines are saying and the delivery of the services. So at this point in time, most cancer survivors are going to have to advocate for services. And the messages I get over and over from people is, nobody told me to exercise. Mm -hmm. I wish I'd known to exercise. Or, oh, I was told to rest. Um, I had one person who was told that they were foolish to be exercising during their treatment. So they went and found a different oncologist. Um, so that's that's where we're at right now. And I was at a meeting last year, so the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, and there's an exercise uh, group there. And the head of that was just talking about, you know, his little anecdote was, well, I'm, I'm in Brisbane for this conference and just out of curiosity, I typed in, you know, find an exercise physiologist at cancer, find a physiotherapist cancer, and he said nobody came up in the search that was within 20 kilometres of where I was, which is probably, I don't know, 12 miles, something like that. So he's like, we've got these guidelines and, and people, we just don't know where to refer people to. And I've got that as well. I get messages all the time. Can you recommend somebody? And I'm like, <laughs> well, well, now you can. Now you can. Now, now you can send the online people to Active Life. Yes. What, 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 what is it though that makes a fitness professional, for example, fit to work with a an active cancer patient or a recovered cancer survivor? Mm -hmm. That that it, based on what you're describing, they have yep. the same exercise protocols as a standard, otherwise yep. healthy individual. So, what is is it? Is it simply the socio-emotional understanding and the empathy of the professional? What, what is it that makes somebody appropriately fit? Okay, so we've got actually, hang on, I'll pull it out. We've got this fantastic guideline that goes exactly through what, you know, the fitness professional, you know, needs to do. So the exercise itself, it's not rocket science. It's still your basic things like, you know, squat, 
box squat, you know, regressing or progressing exercises. The main thing is the management of fatigue, pain, uh, lymphedema risk, and, you know, maybe somebody's got an ostomy, mm-hmm. things like that. And then also looking at someone who is, you know, immunocompromised. So the fitness professional does need to do some basic reading into the impacts of chemotherapy and radiation. So, you know, chemotherapy, it impacts your heart and your lungs. You're probably going to be anemic. You're probably going to be a bit more breathless. Um, Resistance training, you're going to need some more time to rest between sets, you know, using things like cluster sets, um, you know, that auto-regulation. When they're having a good day, you can do more. When you're having a bad day, you know, you, you do less. Um, you know, knowing about lymphedema, um, well, you know, you don't have to be an expert on lymphedema. You just need to be aware if someone's had lymph nodes removed, they're at risk of lymphedema in whatever limb it is. So, you know, if they've had groin lymph, uh, lymph nodes removed, they're at risk of lower limb and genital lymphedema, knowing what the signs and symptoms are and knowing to refer early to a lymphedema therapist. Um, management of fatigue. So you were saying, you know, active life uh, has a lot of uh, experience with pain. The, the principles are pretty similar, mm-hmm. that your initial goal might just be to exercise without provoking the fatigue. That might be the initial goal because if you wait for the fatigue to go away, you might never start exercising mm-hmm. and then rolling with it. Um, again, do more on the days that you feel well, do less on the others. You know, monitoring the exercise. So, uh, I don't know if you encourage people to keep, you know, pain diaries or you know, symptom response. Yep. But um, you know, I, I kept a I kept a journal, and I, I get my patients as well to keep a journal of fatigue, so that we can start working out what is the right dose of exercise. Because we've got these guidelines that we spoke about. You know, 150 minutes per week. Nah, that's that's going to be way too much. So the guidelines actually say avoid physical inactivity. And then work towards and maintain that 150 minutes. So for somebody starting out, it might be five minute, five yeah. minutes a day is all they can manage, and that's great. If you've done five minutes, that's absolutely brilliant. Well done, you. You know, and then we build from there. Um, so there are so we've got this guideline as well, and it talks about the higher risk patients. So the higher risk ones do need to be seen by a health professional, like a physical therapist or an exercise physiologist. Um, and then a fitness professional can deal with, you know, lower-risk patients. So uh, personally, I was working with a powerlifting coach at the time I was diagnosed and I opted to keep working with her. We already had a relationship. She already knew what I was like. Um, you know, I, I did send her some guidelines but she opted not to believe me and she she went and spoke to her physiotherapist about exercise and cancer. And I started to, I could tell that she'd been doing some reading because she'd start using, you know, jargon like blah, 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 fatigue management. Oh, you've been doing some reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so she managed me beautifully. Uh, and I, I know other people that, that had a relationship with the CrossFit gym um, or had a relationship with the personal trainer before and they kept working with them um, because it, that might have been the only normality in their life. So for me, everything was gone. I couldn't work. Um, the only thing that was consistent in my life is I was training with my powerlifting coach before and I kept training with her, you know, throughout. So there is a role and, you know, I, if you have somebody that you're already training and they get diagnosed with cancer, I would encourage people to do some reading, contact the oncology team, um, and, and you know, learn as you go. And we've got brilliant guidelines. So I don't know if you want me to send you some a reading list. I would love later. that. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And if- then also oh, a funny story. I've got a, he's an Instagram friend who's an exercise scientist. Um, he doesn't have experience in cancer care. And I was saying to him, oh, you know, hey, we've got awesome, awesome cancer exercise guidelines in this textbook. 
know, the ACSM guidelines for exercise testing and prescription. And he said, oh, I only ever read the first couple of chapters to get through my exams. <laughs> mm. well, I'm like, it's an awesome, it's an awesome book. You know, it's, it, it goes into, um, I guess, you know, uh, you know, contraindications, precautions, you know, et cetera. Well, if, if, if you would send me those resources, I'll absolutely put them in the show notes for people to be able to utilize because mm. that would be super valuable. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is, is really encouraging for the fitness community for several reasons and for the cancer community. Number one, because you're, you're obviating a need. There's a volume of patients who need help and there is not a volume of fitness professionals who are there to meet them where they are and provide that help. The second thing I'm hearing is you do not need to be somebody who is already an expert on providing exercise support to somebody who is dealing with cancer to be the exact right person to help somebody with exercise who is dealing with cancer. You have to be prepared and actionable at going and doing the research, at becoming the student. That's, that's very encouraging. Because mm -hmm. what, what it means is somebody coming to you who tells you all of a sudden, I have cancer, you do not have to automatically say, damn, I, I wish I could help you. I'm gonna have to, and now I'm looking for, there's nobody, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you can become that person and, and very quickly. And I think that's very encouraging. Hmm. Well, at the moment, only 8% of cancer survivors adhere to the recommended exercise guidelines. Well, it's almost the same as everybody. That's, that, that's, yeah. that's like a societal norm. That's right. But there's more at stake. Yes. Because those who engage in physical activity after cancer have a lower rate of recurrence. Mm -hmm. Also reduces all those side effects. And if we also look at, you know, as a fitness professional, the impact you can have on somebody's quality of life and also potentially longevity. If you, you know, if you can keep them exercising during their treatment, um, in those mouse studies and some emerging human research, that exercise gets more chemotherapy into the tumours. In Australia, we've got a few cancer centres where there's a gym co-located um, in the cancer centre. So you've got chemo, radiation, gym. And you'll do your chemo and you'll go straight to the gym and you'll have your exercise supervised. And there's even studies going on, people are exercising while the chemotherapy is dripping in their veins. So they're sitting on exercise bikes, okay. pedaling away, because in animal studies, this gets more chemo into the tumours and further suppresses it. So that's what's happening on the research side versus, you know, the reality of people are just not getting uh, the services. So... I don't want to be putting up barriers saying, oh, you must have a, you know, diploma and this or that before you even touch mm -hmm. um, a cancer patient. But as you were saying, you do need to quickly get out, do some reading, contact the oncology team because you do want to be safe. Yeah. So you want to be safe, but you do not want to be putting up, you know, unnecessary barriers uh, to exercise. I have and the other thing is half the population is going to get cancer, mm -hmm. half. So if you're deciding that you're not going to work with, with cancer patients, well, you're leaving half the population on the table. The, um, a leading Australian researcher, Puri Kormi, back in 2018 in a TED Talk said something along the lines of, if exercise was a pill, every oncologist would prescribe it Every cancer patient would demand it and every insurance company and government would fund it because, you know, the benefits of exercise. And we're at a point in time where to not recommend exercise is potentially harmful. But exercise doesn't have a multi-billion dollar marketing budget. Um you know, as a concept, you know, who's, who's going to market it? Well, that's, that's, and, a, 
that's a conversation that you and I could have for mm. several hours because I actually believe yes. if the exercise, the fitness industry would, would pull its head out of its proverbial ass, yeah. we do have that budget, but we're focused on the wrong thing. We're as an industry, we are focused on helping the people who have the most capacity. We're focused on helping people shred down, get that butt, get those abs, boost that ego. And there isn't a marketing budget for that. No government is going to support that. No charity is going to support that. And you're all competing for the same bunch of nonsense. Where if the mm. fitness industry, to me, made a 10-degree turn and focused on helping people live life well. I like to say, you know, life well-lived. That's what we do at Active Life. We help people with life well-lived. So they have intentional thought. They have physical freedom. They have emotional well-being. If we can tie those three things as the main outcome indicator that fitness has been successful, the marketing budget is there. But what's happening instead is it's uh, what, how much money do we need to spend to acquire the member and then how many members are actually going to come as compared to how many are actually going to pay? What's our ROI positive advertising budget? And there isn't a billion dollars for that. Because we're not saving people's lives the way that we, that we have the opportunity to. And that's why I was so excited to bring you onto the podcast today. I'm going to bring Joe, because he's in Philadelphia, not in Australia, into the studio. We're going to chat in person. And I, I very much appreciate you shining some light on everything today. Yeah. Um, Helen, where can people find you if they want to get more information besides the stuff you're going to share with me that I'm going to put in the show notes? <laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram, Helen underscore Bealey, B-E-E-L-E-Y. Perfect. We'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Helen, thank you for coming on. Okay. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Active Live podcast. Please remember, give us a hand, rate it, review it wherever you listen to shows. We are on a mission to humanize the healthcare industry by professionalizing the fitness industry to empower the individual to live a life unlimited by the way that their body looks, feels, or performs. If you are inspired by that mission and want to jump on the wagon, find us anywhere. Active Life Professional on Instagram. Active Life RX on Instagram. Come to me personally at Dr. Sean Pestuch. We want to welcome you onto the train. We want you to be a part of the mission. We want to offer you the opportunity to pursue this right alongside us. We're inspired by your effort and we hope to help you in your journey. Turn bro.